Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Joe Manis. Now, before we get to the next part, I just want to say that we are breaking new ground on this show. Listeners, this is a treat. We have never done this before. (laughs) Through the magic of radio, we are partnering with our good friends at KBIA in Columbia to bring you a first-of-its-kind cross-outlet, politically speaking. So joining me in Columbia, our other host... Bram Sablesmith. And our very special guest... Caleb Rowden. Caleb Rowden, a Republican from Columbia. Yes. Thank you very much. oxymoron. (laughs) Tell me where your district is. It's kind of a a wackily-shaped district. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's a a very profound way to say it. Yeah, it's the northeast part of Columbia, so... If you know anything about Columbia, the 7063 interchange, and basically everything north and east of that, up uh, northeast Boone County, Hallsville, Centralia, Sturgeon, and then I have a little bit of Clark uh, in Randolph County. It's a a type of district I don't think has been around very often. I think before redistricting, there was a situation where there was a part of Boone County, northern Boone County, that went into like Monroe and Howard County. After redistricting, the, the Columbia delegation just got very strange and wacky districts. <laughs> we talked about this with Caleb Jones when we, yeah. he was on the show. Yeah, we're talking primar- primarily about the House districts, correct? Yes. 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 Yeah. 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 It's uh, there. There are five now, and and two of them, specifically mine, and now Representative Basie's, are are basically fifty-fifty political sp- splits, but also almost 50-50 geographical splits with the urban-rural mix. So it's an interesting, interesting district. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I know that you have one of the more unlikely paths to Missouri politics. <laughs> uh, tell me what you did before you got into the General Assembly. And I mean, I'm going to preempt Joe here where you went to high school. <laughs> That's, well, hey, you took my question. Go ahead. I, uh, <laughs> I, I proudly can say that I graduated from Rockbridge High School here in Columbia, played baseball and basketball there. Uh, still, uh, what position the, on the basketball team? My dad was a basketball yeah, coach. I, I was a shooting guard. Okay. Uh, I was I was about twenty pounds heavier than I am now, uh, and was about forty pounds heavier than I was when I got to the general assembly. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> um, but uh, so all I could do, and I, I I don't play defense. I can't run well, but I shot the ball very well. I actually one of my claims to fame at Rockbridge is that I I beat. Uh, Josh Kroenke's free throw percentage record. Josh still still hold that record. Now, for our listeners who don't know who Josh Kroenke is, Josh Kroenke is the son of Stan Kroenke, the owner of the St. Louis Rams, who we'll be talking about later in the show. (laughs) And for some reason, when I was in college, he was like a starter on the Mizzou team. I wonder why that is. Was it because I, I, of his skills, or was it? I because couldn't possibly of his... speak to that. If I if I beat him in a, anything, I'm not sure what that means. But, yeah, uh, he hit those three pointers. Yeah, he was he's a good he was a great shooter, great great shooter. So anyway, graduated from Rockbridge, uh, and and uh, turned my life uh, to to music. Uh, signed a couple of record deals. I fi- signed my first record deal in 2005, the year I got married. Uh, first year I was uh, married, I was on the road about 260 days out of that year. What sort of music um, did you play? So we played Christian uh, kind of rock, rock, pop, nothing, nothing terribly heavy, but uh, not uh, classical, some, somewhere in the middle. I got to um, ask this question because this may seem like a surprise, but I'm actually a big fan of Christian screamo music, which includes <laughs> bands like Under Oath 
and the Devil sure. Wears Prada. Have you ever heard of those bands? Have you ever met I, any of those I guys? Have played, I have played festivals with Under Oath, yes. I'm, I am a really big fan of them. I'm yeah. really sad <laughs> that they broke up. And, you know, I, for some reason, I can't really explain why. I really got into the whole, you know, melodic screaming music with people and bands like Thursday and Brand New and those type of bands for whatever reason really appealed to me so i didn't i didn't mean to interrupt uh, that no, I feel I, like I, I need i'm to glad i learned that i think about we're you getting guys. really I'm in the weeds glad. here <laughs> now people uh, so, now people are going to be wondering like what what is wrong with me yeah what continue. makes up jason Rosenbaum? yeah so anyway uh, did the music thing we traveled i did that full-time for about six years um toured 45 states played played a couple hundred shows a year sold some records had some songs on the radio and uh, came back home. Uh, when I got married, I, I realized at some point that I would rather sleep at home next to my wife than on a bus next to a bunch of smelly guys. And so um, so I came home and, and decided, you know, if I was going to be at home more, uh, I'd like to be involved in the community. I, we moved to Columbia in 1990. So Columbia's home. It's, it's been my home for, for 20 plus years. And uh, But I had always been traveling. And so I, I wasn't really able to put down roots the way that I wanted to. And so uh, what what started as maybe a, an attempt to run for city council or something to that degree ended up uh, we it was during redistricting and and uh, we had a couple of folks tell us that there were going to be, be a couple probably a couple of new open seats in Boone County uh, and so I ended up running the 44th district uh, and had a, a four-way primary. Yeah, and I which... wanted to get to that because you had you you faced a lot of interesting candidates in that race. You faced a former libertarian, I think his name is Christopher Dwyer, who actually ran for state senate in 2008 and for Congress in 2010. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You faced Lloyd Becker, who was actually the Democratic nominee for a Audrain County House seat in 2004. <laughs> I actually that was one of the first House races I ever covered when he got you know decimated by yeah. Steve Hobbs. <laughs> and then you faced uh, former state senator Dennis Smith, who was originally from Springfield but had moved to Columbia. This was just in the primary. Um, you won that primary, and then you faced off against former state senator Ken Jacob, who, um, you know, is a long, col colorful character in Columbia political history. He had just lost two straight races, one for lieutenant governor and one for Congress, pretty badly, but had kind of rallied and garnered pretty significant support and organization for this competitive seat. And it was, it was a pretty close race from what I remember. What was it like running in that nutty type of contest I just <laughs> described? Yeah, it was it was crazy. I mean, you, you kind of thought initially the, the hope was that I, I could maybe uh, find the right seat uh, that I wouldn't have to have a primary. Obviously, when, in those redistricting years, you don't necessarily have to run in the district that you live in. I ended up running in the district that I lived in, which was good. But uh, so, you know, there's a little bit of finagling there and jockeying to try to maybe uh, sidestep a primary. And, you know, knowing my luck, I ended up with three other guys. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I, I um, found out later that uh, I've been told this by a few guys that I'm the only state rep to ever beat two state senators in a House race. <laughs> um, I, I think that's which, true, which is which is very interesting. I I'll wear that as a badge of honor, I guess. But yeah. It was it was an interesting race. I mean, obviously uh, Ken has, had been around for a long time and and was 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 very good at what he did. Uh, I think he had uh, just uh, at that point probably burned a few too many bridges. And I think some of the relational aspects of what you need to be successful in a race, I think he he maybe didn't quite have that. Yeah, not uh, to go too much in the weeds here, but I can tell you that many of my the, my predecessors as Columbia Daily Tribune state government reporter 
did not get along with Ken Jacob very well. <laughs> he was actually out of office when I was there. He was Susan Monty's general counsel. So I can tell you we got along very well because I basically wasn't covering him anymore in any sure. daily capacity. <laughs> so Yeah, well, and we, we got along pretty well. Uh, our, our campaign... Uh, Although it was very uh, a very competitive seat and one of the most expensive in that cycle, uh, you know it, it didn't get all that dirty. Uh, you know we tried to bring up some stuff about his voting record in the past, and and he just showed a picture of me next to Todd Aiken, and obviously that didn't work well. So yeah, well you ended up winning, and you actually you won it, won re-election in 2014. So just just basically for our listeners who don't know a lot about you, what's kind of your role in the Missouri House and what, what, what would you say you've been known for over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I, my first two years, I was lucky enough to, to uh, f- get a spot on the budget committee. So we worked really hard there. Uh, we worked uh, alongside Chris Kelly and, and uh, some others with Kurt on the, on the Senate side, Senator Schaefer, uh, a couple of uh, big wins for Mizzou, Laffrey Hall, uh, and, and, the, and the money for that, which we're breaking ground on next week. Uh, you know, some, some work that we did uh, on the back end to secure more core funding last year. Uh, so the budget thing's kind of been my mark up until this point. Uh, this last year, I, I got named, uh, Speaker Deal named me the chairman of the Economic Development Committee, uh, which is really what I'm passionate about. I think I think Missouri uh, has lacked a, a long-term strategy for how we're going to grow the private sector in the next you know 10 to 20 years. And so our goal, we've been going around the state over spring break. I was in um, Springfield and St. Louis and Kansas City. We held business roundtables in conjunction with their chambers and, and the, the city administration. Sly James was with us in Kansas City. And, and we're working together to get a lot of people at the table and, and come up with a cohesive long-term strategy for economic development in the state. And I, I hope um, with a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work that that could be part of the mark that, that I'm able to leave on the Missouri House. Now, let's kind of get uh, knee-deep into issues, and I want to throw it to our colleague over in Columbia, Bram Sable-Smith. One of the bills that I believe that you sponsored recently would preempt a lot of things that the Columbia City Council has either proposed or passed. Bram, could Mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit more about what the heck is going on in in (laughs) Columbia right now? Yeah, so we're talking about ban the box here. Um, and so ban the box is a uh, it's a piece of legislation that would um, make it essentially illegal for for um, employers to have their applicants check a box that says that they've been convicted of uh, of a crime or a felony. Now you all have this in St. Louis, Kansas City has it, um, but the difference between what Columbia passed and what you all have out there in St. Louis is that this would um, this would impact both the private sector and the public sector. Correct. Okay. The Kansas City and St. Louis ones are only for governmental employees. So it's a big difference from what Columbia is doing. Okay. Right. Continue. Yeah. And, and so Columbia already stopped uh, at, you know, they, they call it ban the box because there's that box that you check. Um, and Columbia already stopped asking that in 2012. So really, this is mostly for the private sector here in town. And so they went through a long process on it. Um, and then eventually in December, they passed it unanimously on, on the city council. Um, and that's, yeah. And so that leads to me. Yes. 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 Go ahead. I, I, for what I understand, guess. yeah, for what I understand, though, Representative Rowden, your bill does more than just preempt local um, municipalities or counties from ban the box types things. It, it, yeah. Well, tell me a little so, bit about it. Yeah. So it does three things. It, it, it touches ban the box. It touches uh, minimum wage. Uh, and it touches uh, mandated uh, sick leave. And so three different things. I'll talk about them 
quickly but separately. Ban the box. The Columbia ban the box ordinances is frankly one of the most absurd things I've ever seen in my entire life for a number of reasons. One of which being the fact that it it uh, mandates private business uh, that they can't what they can and cannot do in a job application, which I don't believe local ordinance has any authority to do. The second thing that it did, and 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 the more egregious thing that it did was that it said that that they couldn't even ask. Uh, the job applicant, if uh, that they if they had been convicted of a felony, until they had offered uh, them a, a, a conditional mm-hmm. offer of employment, and so basically what that would say is that a, 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 a daycare in Columbia couldn't ask a potential um, child abuser if they if in fact that was in their past until after the, after they had offered them a job, and so uh, ban the box. The idea of uh, being able to take that box off of the application so that an applicant has a chance to make it through the first step and get in front of, of, uh, of a job creator, a business owner, somebody making the hire, that in and of itself is not a, not a bad thing, I don't think. But I think there's two problems. One, I'm not sure even state has the power or the authority or should be mandating that on the private sector. Um, and, and and secondly, I, I, I'm certain that local ordinance doesn't have the authority to do it. And so if, it's, if it is a conversation that's going to happen, it should happen at the state level. Now, quick question about that. Would that only ban municipalities from extending that to private businesses, or would it also nullify Kansas City or St. Louis's internal ban the boxes it would well? not. It would not be retroactive. Uh, and so anything that has, has been in place, anything that is currently in place, uh, it would it would allow that to continue. I believe, um, and I believe the, I think that some of the Columbia folks thought that it was retroactive. My belief is that the Columbia ordinance gets thrown out eventually, and so then if my bill were to pass and their ordinance gets thrown out, then they they just wouldn't have the ability to do it again uh, on the private sector. Obviously, some of your your colleagues and on the Columbia City Council are not super thrilled about <laughs> this. We're actually going to hear a clip from actually my former councilwoman. Uh, Laura Nauser, who didn't really feel that this type of preemption is appropriate. Local government is the closest to the people. Again, I do not support banning legal products that are useful to our community and citizens. But furthermore, I do not support our state and federal overlords getting involved in what has been historically local issues. First of all, I, I'm sure I that you think it's cool. I got called an overlord. I was just going to say, overlord is a cool <laughs> world. I, this is the reason this interests me because a couple years ago, St. Louis and St. Louis County passed foreclosure mediation ordinances. Mm-hmm. They were both litigated, but the banks and the real estate folks came up with a bill to preempt those ordinances and basically make them null and void, which was successful. And I kind of see this as an extension of that where, you know, councils and county commissions or whatnot are trying to pass things that probably wouldn't be able to go through the state legislature. So what do you make of the idea that, you know, you're interfering with local councils' ability to to do things that they say help their people? Well, I think we have to be, one, educated and two, honest about the role of the various levels of government. Uh, I think, you know, we get the, I've said this in every interview that I've done, we get the role of government at the state level wrong all the time. We do things probably that we shouldn't be doing as it relates to interference in any number of things. And so I, I am by no means perfect in this regard, but I don't, cha- I don't think it changes the reality um, that when you're talking about these sorts of uh, broad business practices that apply across uh, overlapping municipalities and specifically the, the impact on a, a small business owner who operates in 
Ashland and Columbia and Jeff City and Hallsville and Centralia. Um, those are things, but just because of our perspective at the state level and the authority that's granted to us, state constitution, state statute, and, and to some degree, United States uh, law, that that those that the place that that happens is at the state level. Now, that's not true of everything. Obviously, you know, when the, when the city of Columbia passes a trash collection ordinance, uh, that Im- that impacts the people of Columbia. That impacts the people inside the city limits, but it doesn't impact Ashland. It doesn't impact, impact business owners in, in Centralia, Jefferson City, and whatever else. And so those are the distinctions that I think need to be made as we're talking about these policies. Well, first, though, uh, you mentioned there's two other provisions of your bill, one of which affects minimum wage. Uh, can you touch on those really quickly? Because I think yeah, minimum, those, those, I, those have become key as well. Yeah, minimum wage, I believe. There's a statute that I don't, I should know on the top of, top of my head, but there's already a statute that says in, in uh, Missouri, Missouri statutes, it says that local ordinance can't raise minimum wage. So the, the way St. Louis got around it uh, is is that they called it a living wage instead of a minimum wage. Um, and and that's been ruled on. So there's some uncertainty as far as uh, you know the the, um, so the court's would, view of that and, and our view of the statute. And so part of this is uh, on that side of it is just a clarification. So would this provision affect throughout St. Louis's living wage law? No, okay. none of it's retroactive. Okay. And the third yeah. part of your bill uh, is the is the mandated sick leave, and I think that's again the the idea of crossing over municipalities and businesses who operate across that and have having to offer uh, different benefits and different things to different employees inside their own company. I just don't think they have the authority to make those determinations. Getting back to the uh, state government versus the local government, um, the the piece that Nauser was speaking, she was speaking about uh, another issue that the Columbia City Council had taken on, which was the possibility of banning plastic bags at grocery stores. And they, they threw that uh, proposed ordinance out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what she was responding to there. Uh, and so the Columbia City Council has been uh, expressed a lot of frustration towards the state legislature um, for kind of preempting some sure. of the laws they were passing. And, and one of the arguments they've made is that, you know, local local governments, local municipalities could be this, these laboratories of experimentation for... Yeah, except if their ideas are horrible. And if their ideas are blatantly against the law, in my view. So, I mean, I think those are the elements that you have to I, – I, I'm fine with local folks doing things uh, more progressively than we do at the state level if, they're, if it's within their confines of what they're supposed to be doing. So it's not as much about the policy. That I've said all along this isn't really an argument about the merit of ban the box, which I believe in its purest form isn't a bad thing, or the merits of a higher minimum wage, any of those things. It's just a matter of – who should be making the decisions uh, in in these cases? And I think, you know, the plastic bag thing is 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 another thing. I mean, I was in Kansas City, and Mayor Sly James said, "I wish your city council would calm down, so we would get we would stop getting thrown under the bus with them." So you're talking about the mayor, the mayor of Kansas City, a a, a, a you know a liberal town for all intents and purposes, uh, and 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 they're telling me that. What we're doing in Colombia is excessive and is is going too far in many cases. So I think that says everything that you'd need to know about our current state. Just playing devil's advocate here, uh, the General Assembly, Republican leaders of the General Assembly, had for has for years been blasted Congress and others, um, the president, whatever, for big government, for big government sure. trying to put things on states. Well, uh, just playing devil's advocate, isn't this effort, and not just this effort, but let's say uh, the recent uh, gun bills that uh, swept out some of uh, the city of St. Louis's restrictions as far as concealed carry and where people could carry guns, 
Isn't that, in effect, big government on the state part? There's a huge distinction that needs to be made. Uh, state government, the states created the federal government. The states also enacted cities, enacted city government. And so a lot of the power, the centralization of power, as it relates to what is defined by the United States Constitution, uh, United States statute and otherwise, says that a lot of that power and a lot of those decisions are supposed to and should be made at the state level. And so we are well within our rights uh, at the state level to push back against uh, federal uh, uh, law and, and, and things that we see to be overreaching if we think that they go outside the scope of what is uh, allowed by federal statute and by uh, the United States Constitution. And so there are distinctions there. I think, again, I, we don't always get it right, and, and I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, but I, I, I don't believe that the relationship between uh, Jefferson City and Washington, D.C. Is, is in in any way comparable to the relationship between Jefferson City and local municipalities. Well, we could talk about uh, the internal things Columbia is doing for hours, <laughs> but we're going to move on a little bit to something a little bit more St. Louis-centric, the, the stadium uh, fight sure. here in the ram with, with the Rams. Now, uh, the reason we're asking you about it is you are the chairman of the Economic Development Committee. I'm not really sure if any stadium legislation will go through your committee, but I would imagine that you're going to be one voice out of many that's going to be pretty crucial in this entire situation. What do you kind of make of this bid by the governor and Dave Peacock and others to make this Riverfront Stadium a reality? You know, I think the governor has, has done what he needed to do. I think what he had to do, uh, he, he certainly needed to be out front on this uh, and, and try to confront it and try to keep uh, the Rams in St. Louis. There are uh, There is a, a, a very... Um, broad uh, view that that uh, this is going to be a really, really tough thing to make happen. Uh, and, and that view extends far outside of the people inside the Missouri legislature. I mean, we've seen a number of polls, some within the city of St. Louis and some within St. Louis County, uh, who all think are, are just very skeptical at this point of any uh, serious amount of, of uh, taxpayer dollars going to subsidize uh, a new stadium in St. Louis. Um, I, I don't think it's impossible, uh, but I would certainly say that the, the path that, uh, that we would have, that the governor ha would have uh, to get something done uh, that uses taxpayer dollars or, or that greatly extends current programs, um, it's just going to be an uphill climb because the public perception uh, and the public demand for it is very, very low. Is there a fear, though, that the governor is going to move without the legislator's permission on this? Um you know, it's been talked about. It would be a, a, a obviously a very bold step that he would be taking there, and 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 certainly moving um, very very swiftly against the current of public uh, of public perception. Um, it, it would be a very unpopular decision to make, uh, obviously amongst the legislature, but then also I think amongst the general public. He, he can make, maybe make that determination if he wants to. I don't believe he has authority to do so, but um, you well, know, maybe he does. We'll wait and see. I actually asked the governor that question uh, a couple of days ago about whether there should be either a legislative vote to extend the bonds uh, or a statewide vote, as well as a citywide mm -hmm. vote in St. Mm -hmm. Louis. Here's what he had to say. Well, I mean, I've always said that, that if, if, if votes were necessary, then those votes would, would occur. I mean, we're, as we work towards the finalization of this, we'll look at it. But the legislature gets to vote every year on all proposals as far as expending money, and they have voted for many years in a row for the funding for the dome that exists right now. What do you make of that? 
Uh, it's a it's a pretty weak interpretation, I think, of of our current predicament. Uh, I think uh, you know it, it, to to compare what has been done to to what is being proposed to be done. Uh, I think is is probably a, a little bit unfair to the to the context. Uh, and I think again something that I I, I believe. A lot of folks in the General Assembly, uh, and many on the the left side of the aisle, but then also the general public would probably agree that that's a, an unfair view of the context. Well, I'm going to throw a curveball here because I I'm, I had another first this week. I met the governor <laughs> of Illinois for the first time, um, a governor of the, in, the Illinois for the first time. I'm an Illinois native. It was a, a great moment for Jason nice. Rosenbaum. And I actually asked him whether it might make more sense to have the new Ram Stadium <laughs> slightly east of the Mississippi River. <laughs> well, I can tell you, uh, Metro East would be a terrific location for that sort of a facility. Uh, we've got the infrastructure, we've got the hardworking people to build it, and we've got access into St. Louis without a lot of the congestion issues and a lot of the opportunity. It would be a wonderful uh, uh, development. That's Governor Bruce Rauner, by the way. Has there been any thought of maybe an Illinois-Missouri partnership, building it in Illinois and maybe having you know, two jurisdictions help pay for the public aspect, or is that just fantasy land, pie in the sky sort of thing? Um, I mean, I haven't heard any serious talk about it. Uh, I, I can't imagine that the governor would probably be open to engaging in those conversations. I, I certainly can't can't speak fully to that. I mean, I think the thing that we have to be honest about, and, and I can't say that I have the answer to this question, uh, but we have to be honest about what uh, Mr. Kroenke's intention is here. Uh, and, you know, it's one thing to say, can we get it done? Uh, it's another thing to say, are we getting it done for a reason that will provide some some positive outcome for the state? Uh, and, and I'm not convinced um, that that uh, he has any great desire to stay here. Now, that doesn't mean I, I have said all along that if the St. Louis Rams leave St. Louis and go to Los Angeles. I still think in, in five to ten years, St. Louis is probably a football town. I think that there are other opportunities for us to continue to go down this road, but we just have to be honest about the, the context and the variables at play and, and not uh, hang taxpayers out to dry over uh, you know something that, that may or, not even, may or may not even be a reality. Let's switch something a little bit more current, which yes, is ethics. Correct. Yeah, mm-hmm. the ethics bills. As you know, I mean, you've been a sponsor of several of the ethics bills. One of them in particular that I've been interested in is the one that, in effect, would require disclosure of contributions to 501c3s or c4s, sorry, that um, operate in, in, in the state on political campaigns. Um, I'm interested in kind of your thoughts about what's going to happen with that bill and others uh, sure. as as we get into the final weeks. Yeah, well, we passed uh, uh, the Senate Bill 11 that I was the handler of in the House. We passed that yesterday, and, and that included a number of provisions. I think the most um, productive of, of those were a, a $25 cap on lobbyist gifts and a uh, one-year revolving door policy that, that says that, that uh, legislators have to wait a year before becoming a lobbyist, and that applies. The, the, the plan that the Senate had sent over was two years and did not include current legislators. Ours in, uh, put moved it back to one, which is more in line with the federal policy and states as a whole, but then also included us, which we thought at the, in the House was the right thing to do. Uh, so we passed that out. Our, our strategy as it relates to the, the bill that you mentioned uh, you know, we wanted to keep uh, ethics reform in in the, the uh, way that we did it yesterday separate from campaign finance. We do that for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, you guys know the issues in 2010 uh, with the last, uh, the, the, the greatest ethics bill in the universe or whatever that was called. 
Uh, that that was preceded me, but um, but you know had had some issues and eventually ended up getting thrown out. And so you know we've been very intentional in, uh, about trying to make sure that if we put something on the governor's desk, that that we that we uh, go around the ability for that to happen. Uh, and I think we've done that. I don't know, uh, you know, where the 501 conversation goes. I think ultimately that's going to have to be a, a decision that Speaker Deal and, and uh, uh, Majority Floor Leader Richardson make on if, if we want to move ahead with that in the House. Well, I wanted to just touch on the campaign finance aspect of this for, for a second, because that's been one of the criticisms, at least from Democrats about this bill, that it didn't really, you know, cap ca- campaign contribution sure. limits. I mean, I mean, there have been some Republicans who have who voted to repeal campaign finance limits who have kind of changed their views on it. One of them is uh, former Senator Scott Roop, now a public service commissioner. This is what he said when he was on our show. I voted to remove campaign contribution limits several years ago, a biggest uh, regretting vote I, that I have. You know, because we were living in an era of, you know, $675. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I woefully underestimated the, the amount of money that, that has started to flow, flow into the campaigns. He's not the only one who's taken that that tack. I know that Senators David Pierce and Rob Schaff have also expressed regret over that vote. What's kind of your take on that? Do you think it's time for Republicans to <clears throat> reconsider this issue? I'm not opposed to the conversation, I, I, and I'll, I'll be, be um, honest about that. It's obviously not something that's going to uh, go anywhere. I think this year in the Missouri legislature, Senator Richard probably has been the, the leading voice on that. And obviously he carries a great deal of weight uh, in the Senate about as far as what gets to the floor. Uh, and so I think, you know, for us to have tried to have put anything like that on a bill in the House that was going to get sent back to the Senate, uh, you know, is basically for all intents and purposes, given the information that we know a poison pill to make sure that it doesn't end up becoming law. And so you know, the Democrats are going to be able to make those arguments uh, because uh, they're they're not really charged with passing anything. They can just they say what they want to say and, and, and they want to make sure that they uh, make us look bad as much as they can. But we are trying in an honest fashion, in a very intentional fashion to pass serious ethics reform. And I think we're closer to doing that than we've been in quite some time. And that's something that I think I, I'm proud of. And, and I think a, a number of members in the House that have been a part of this conversation are proud of as well. Well, is there concern, as I said, I've written about the 501c4 issue, where you've got operations on both parties and you've got some national groups who may be throwing in 501c4 money, probably for the um, uh, governor's race and others, where it could be millions of dollars and people really won't know where those where, where that sure. money comes from. And as you know, some of the major donors in Missouri donate the public way and then they donate the 501c4 way. Sure. Um, is there much concern about that in the General Assembly, or is that something that's just interesting those of us in the chattering class? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some of us. Obviously, I filed the bill, uh, and so it's an, an issue that I, I personally believe is something that we should address. Um, uh, you, you know, I'm not sure it's as uh, expansive or as broad in, in its um, impact on, the Missouri, in, on Missouri politics as some would want to uh, make us believe. Uh, but I do think it's an issue, and I think in an era of uh, or and in a state where we have unlimited campaign contributions, which I think will probably be true for, for uh, the foreseeable future, I think we should be sure that our process is transparent. And if you sign on the dotted line to, to uh, you know, donate to a, a campaign, to a cause, to a candidate, uh, that, that that information is available out there. So I certainly personally uh, believe that, that that should be the case. But again, it goes back to 
what we feel like we have the opportunity to accomplish uh, in the legislature as far as needing uh, the votes that we need in the House and Senate. We only have a few minutes left, and I've been waxing nostalgic so much about Columbia that I've been rudely uh, not letting our, our guest host chime in. Bram, I know you, that you've been following the Medicaid issue as a reporter for KBIA. I would like you to, I'm going to throw it to you to ask a question about that. Uh, I'm just personally curious. I mean, what is it about Medicaid expansion that it makes it such a non-starter uh, among your colleagues? And then I wonder if, if you see if there's any opening uh, to, to change that. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. Uh, I think the first being, in our current context, I think there's probably two, two uh, immediate things that, that make it a non-starter at this point. I think you have the uncertainty that, that uh, hangs around the King v. Burwell Supreme Court decision uh, that'll come down here uh, in the next few months. I think, uh, you know, if that if that if the if it rules in favor of the if the court rules in favor of the plaintiff, uh, that pretty drastically changes the dynamic uh, around the Affordable Care Act at the federal level, and certainly has an impact on us at the state level. Um, it, will the know, legislature? Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt here, but will, ahead, the, le will the legislature take action and try to? Uh, do something so that the subsidies can continue to go to those hundreds of thousands who, of Missourians who use them to buy insurance? Uh, you know, I haven't heard uh, any effort at this point. I can't, I, I don't know that I can say definitively one way or the other. But um, so I think that for me, the overarching issue, and, and I've said all along that I, I have no problem having a conversation, you know, a reform and expansion conversation. Um, but I think that there there is a really important reality on as it relates to our current Medicaid population and the realities that surround that and the expansion population. So our current population is about 900,000 Missourians. Uh, that, that the cost of, of uh, expansion or the cost of, of maintaining the status quo on those 900,000 over the last five years has gone up. It, I've heard anywhere from 800 million of general revenue to a billion dollars. This year alone, it was about $170 million. And that's just basically cost to continue, cost to maintain the current population. Uh, and, and us expanding me Medicaid doesn't really do a whole lot to change the trajectory of spending. Now, you can make the argument, and I've seen the argument made, that there will be savings from the expansion population that you can then go back and, and, and use for other things, but it doesn't change the underlying cause of why our trajectory of Medicaid spending has gone up so rapidly in the last 10 years. And people ask, well, why in the world aren't you funding the foundation formula, and why aren't we really rebuilding I-70 and some of these other things? And and yeah, we're a low tax state, but there is no there is no logical argument as to why we're not doing those things other than the increase, uh, the large high trajectory increase in Medicaid spending. And so the and the other reality I think that we need to think of is the the point of Obamacare, the point of the ACA was to was to provide parity around the country as far as what states uh, were covering. Uh, for the um, uh, federal poverty level. And then also, I believe, eventually the goal is to provide fair parity as far as what the reimbursement is back to the state on the existing population. And so right now ours is 60-40, Illinois is 50-50. And I think the goal at the federal level is to get to where every state is at 50-50. And so if that happens, uh, then then that's a, another billion dollars general revenue uh, for the existing population, which again isn't changed at all by a, an expansion conversation, and so there are merits of expansion uh, that that are out there that are, are widely discussed, but there are also drawbacks as it relates to we can't just say, well, let's just flip the switch on Medicaid expansion and not talk about 
the realities of the current population and, and the problems that lie around that. We're never going to fund the formula as long as um, we are continuing to, to increase the trajectory of, of existing Medicaid spending at the, at the level we are. So that has to be a part of the conversation, you know, and I, again, you can certainly have another conversation on the expansion side, but if, if we do that outside of the, the existing population, uh, we're doing a, a, a terrible disservice to, to Missouri taxpayers. Uh, two related questions. First, I covered Senator McCaskill this week, and she was talking about this. And, of course, she's blasting the General Assembly for not doing it. But one of her arguments at this WashU symposium was that a lot of this affects elderly uh, because then there's fewer rural hospitals for them to get care at. And she says a lot of this talk about the rising costs of Medicaid doesn't get at the fact that a large portion of it is for caring for elderly in nursing homes and that that wouldn't necessarily be affected even if you continued to cut the income. I'm just interested in your thoughts about um, all that. And also related is the fact that most of the states surrounding Missouri, but not all, um, are trying to come up with some sort of way to get that federal money. Um, any thoughts? Does that put pressure on the General Assembly? Um, you know, I, I think maybe it could. I, I, I don't know that we've really uh, uh, felt it at this point. But uh, I, I think to your first point, you're, you're right. The, the two-thirds of the Medicaid cost comes from one-third of the population, and that is, and, and that is the elderly folks. Um, and so that's all a part of, I think, a, a larger, more expansive reform conversation that I think we, we, we certainly need to have and that we're going to have to have because, re, you know, throw out the merits of expansion, Medicaid expansion and even throw out the Affordable Care Act in the state, we still have that increasing trajectory for that current population. And we, we can't be naive about that and just turn a blind eye and hope it gets better because it's not getting any better. Uh, and so I think that's a that's a tough, that's a, a uphill climb and a tough lift for the Missouri General Assembly, but uh, it's something that I think we need to do because the, the, the trajectory at this point just isn't sustainable. Is there any, is there any part of uh, this argument that has to do with kind of uh, where the money is going? So right now, about 26% of the enrollees in Missouri's Medicaid program are in the St. Louis region. So that's the city, the county, Jefferson County, and St. Charles County as well. Uh, and uh, the projections are if we do increase uh, the enrollment, it'd be about 300,000 people or 300,000 mm -hmm. additional yeah. enrollees. And of them, again, about 26% of that of those new enrollees would also uh, be in that same four county area. Yeah, that hasn't really I don't I don't think that that's really been a part of our, our conversation one way or the other. I mean, you know, the the, the areas of need are the areas of need. Uh, and, and there's not a whole lot that we're going to be able to do to change that. I think that's the geographical dynamics of the state that we all know exist. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not sure that's a big, big part of the conversation at this point. So I'm going to have to press the buzzer on this conversation. We are <laughs> heading perilously close to the 40-minute mark, which we get electroshocked if we hit. <laughs> so thank you very much for being our guinea pig in this. Um, you bet. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, to close us out, you can find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org and kbia.org. You can follow me on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. You can follow our good friend Bram on Twitter at B E Sables. B E S A B L E S. Just a little complicated right there. And you can also <laughs> follow uh, Representative Rowden at Caleb Rowden44. Uh, you got to get the 44 correctly. I just That's right. I, I mis mistaked that before. <laughs> uh, until next week, thank you for listening and so long. 